0: to be here and thanks to Jim for inviting me. It's, uh, it's really great to be here. Uh, i glad you all could make it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a lot of numbers at you today and I, they should all be in front of you so, so just follow along. Uh, you know, I wanted to, I, I haven't seen an election uh, where uh, people in my business have been so focused on demographics and demographic change as the current election, or the upcoming 2016 election just about the changes in the nation and what that means for both political parties. Today we'll be talking about the Republicans, obviously, but uh, it it has been remarkable, the change, and as you can see from the first slide that I put together, this is just the change in the public over the last, you know, about half century, How how this country has changed demographically. Going from a country that's 87% white non-Hispanic to the most recent uh, 2010 census of, of 65%. And our our, I am not a demographer, but our uh, demographic experts at the Cube Research Center uh, model these things and say that by 20, 2060 it, it, we could well be uh, a minority, a majority of minority nation, 47% white non-Hispanic given current trends. And as you've all seen, this has had an impact on the elector, although more slowly, because there's uh, you know, minorities, particularly Hispanics, uh, have lower turnout, voter turnout, than they do their percentage of the population. You might say they punch below their weight politically, or have uh, the last few elections. But you can see it there, every election since 1992, the percentage of white non-Hispanics has ticked down. 73% according to this is a this is a uh, based on the census uh, not the exit poll but the same trends are evident in both the exit polls and the census and you can see in the, in the third slide the bad news for people in this room what happened to mitt romney in, in 2012 he won the won the white vote by 20 points 59% to 39% now how does that stack up historically well that's better than george w bush did it's the same percentage of the white vote that George H.W. Bush won in 1988 when he won a, a pretty, pretty impressive victory. And of course, uh, Romney, Romney gets defeated, in part, at least, to the changing demographic composition of the, of, of the nation. Now recently at the Pew Research Center, we put together a project where we crunched a lot of our, uh, our party identification data. We, we collect about somewhere around 15,000 to 25,000 interviews a year. We looked back on what we had compiled since 1992. The first slide there, we, we sort of borrowed some data from Gallup and we wanted to look at party identification in the nation going back to 1939, going back to, to FDR. What you see there is very interesting. Uh, you know, this sort of democratic advantage uh, comes down the, this huge Democratic advantage of party identification, and the public comes down, way down during the Reagan era, almost uh, to parity. But, but look at the end of that graph, and you can see, see kind of an interesting uh, phenomenon there, which is the percentage of independence, political independence, is now at its highest point ever in this whole period. Uh, 39% call themselves independents. I think that reflects a couple of things, among other things, neither party is particularly popular at the moment, and so there's a there's a reluctance to identify with either party. But but it's important to note that the same the same phenomenon is happening at a time when we're increasingly polarized. People people have strong political views. They line line up with a party and vote vote for parties. They just choose not to call themselves partisans by and large. So what we do is combine people who affiliate with a party and lean toward a party, you know, and and that gives us a better measure of their actual preference. And you can see here how those trends have gone. Uh, You know, more whites identify or lean Republican than than Democratic. Uh, Again, uh, Republicans are, 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 you know, are losing ground or probably not losing, but it's certainly in, in a worse spot with minorities, and you can see it with these key groups for Republicans and Democrats. No surprises there, except I think a couple of groups are pretty interesting, the white, white men who have not uh, gotten a college degree, not white non-college men, uh, favoring the Republicans by 21 points, a pretty, pretty surprising margin. And then that group for the Democrats, the post-grad women. a a group that's becoming increasingly Democratic, uh, favoring the Democrats by a wide margin. So when we crunch all this data and you look at the profiles of the party, these are people who say they're Republicans or say they're Democrats, see how they've changed in the last 20-plus years. You can see the Republicans at a time of great demographic change, remaining overwhelmingly white, Democrats, you know, already more diverse, becoming more diverse. Now, what does this mean? Ed's going to be talking about 2016. You know, in my business, a lot of analysts are are sort of saying demographics are destiny, and I reject that. I I don't think we know what this means for 2016. I think we know that the, the Republican Party faces Big challenges going forward. There's no question about that. The demographics are not favorable. There are, there are so many wildcards and variables for 2016, though, that, that, uh, that it, it's a little hard to predict uh, with any degree of certainty uh, what this might mean. And I know some of Ed's colleagues on the Republican side. Are making bold statements and saying that the Republicans need to win 40% of the Hispanic vote if they're going to be competitive. There's simply no way to know that at this point. For one thing, turnout is very unpredictable, and that's you know this data I've been showing you is all that's all the denominator. This is this is this is the, this is the public. This isn't voters. Uh, turnout is very unpredictable. We've had two elections, for instance, with extraordinarily high African American turnout. Not likely to have an African-American at the top of the ticket in 2016. That may affect turnout there. The Hispanic vote, uh, seemingly locked in for Democrats in in 2012, is very unpredictable and has varied widely over the last several elections. You may remember in George Bush's uh, second election that he won 44% of the Hispanic vote. That figures in some dispute, but some people say 40. 40 is a pretty big number anyway. And and uh, and we've seen if you compare the changes in the white non-Hispanic vote, black vote uh, over over the years, and the Hispanic vote, it's the Hispanic vote that's varied most widely, and so thus is much but you know is much less predictable. And finally, you know, as Ed will tell you, the fundamentals still matter. It's not all about demographics, and and uh, and so all of this means that there are no magic numbers in terms of winning the white vote or winning the Hispanic vote. But I do think these these, these demographics present a real challenge to the Republican Party going forward. There's no question about that. Now I'm going to change to a subject uh, near and dear to everyone's heart here, which is Congress, which, uh, to no one's surprise, uh, people are not uh, not very happy with Congress. But it But it really is extraordinary now, the degree to which this line keeps going down this favorability line now down to 22%. And I like to talk about that a little bit. It's 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 now a bipartisan phenomenon. Republicans, Democrats, independents. Nobody seems to like Congress. Nobody seems to like congressional leaders of either party. But I but I point to, I, I call your attention to this this graphic here where you can see the real law of diminishing returns What I did was put together views of Congress uh, among the party that just won Congress uh, at about 100 days. And you can see the contract with America era, 1995. 80% of Republicans said the Republican Party was keeping its promises. 78% were approving of the party's leader in Congress. For every victorious party, since then, you know, kind of a turnover, a partisan turnover in Congress. The share of, of, uh, of partisans who give their own party high marks has gone down. I mean, there, there's there's a, there's, a, there's a long-term decline in that. And now you see the Republicans rating their own party very low, just 37 percent saying the Republican Party is keeping its promises. 41 percent approving of GOP leaders. And what's going on there? I mean, what we're seeing, I think, a couple of things. I think there is kind of a dangerous, you could call it that, erosion in long-term views of Congress. I, th- I think the institution itself is, is being viewed more negatively than ever before, again, across party lines. But also, I think there's there, there may have been an unrealistic expectation for the new congressional majority. I mean, we ask people, uh, you know, are, are they doing enough to... Challenge Obama, 75% of Republicans said no. And and that that was a great source of unhappiness. Cooperation with Obama uh, is is not something that that most Republicans want. But I mean, this as we look at the political landscape, and I focused on the Republicans, you look at these long term drafts on on party favorability, neither party is viewed particularly favorable at this point. The Democrats, perhaps a few ticks better, but but not much better. And and finally, I'll get to some good news for for some Republicans. Republicans still like their party. It, it's, it's 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 the Hill that really kind of bothers them. 86% still view uh, the Republican Party favorably. That's up 17 points since the 2012 election. Uh, you know, the partisans tend to rate their party pretty badly after an election loss. So it's up 17 points, and here's here's a really interesting, and I know Ed's going to talk about 2016, but then I found this very interesting. You know, for all the talk about the crowded presidential field on the Republican side, and since this poll was conducted in in late May, I think there are 15 or 20 more candidates. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of my friends in the media had had a lot of fun at the Republicans' expense. Republican voters like like this this drama, like this feel. I mean, look at this: fifty-seven percent of Republican voters say that say the current crop of candidates is good or excellent. That's slightly more than Democrats at this point, fifty-seven to fifty-four. And at this point in two thousand seven, the 2008 <coughs> election. You had much more enthusiasm for the field on the Democratic side than the Republican side. Of course, you had a drama going on then. You had two very attractive candidates, history-making candidates, as well as several other candidates at that point. Republicans, not so much, uh, not, not very excited at that point. Now you see the Republicans kind of liking this. I mean, it goes to show you that if you give voters competition and drama, they actually will respond now. I suppose there's a limit to all this, <laughs> but uh, but at this point, there's been no kind of uh, backlash or, or negative effect. We'll, we'll we'll check back in a few months and see see after the debates. But uh, I, I thought that was a, a kind of surprising number given the media narrative that that the field is too crowded, and uh, and I think you know I've thrown a lot of numbers. I, ch- I think with that, I'll. I'll get off the stage and, and welcome
1: Ed. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, and th- uh, thanks for the opportunity to, to, uh, to come back. Uh, I have to say I'm, I'm pleased to be here this morning with Carol. Um, he's very, very good at what he does. Um, uh, I'm going to say some things this morning that will sound like I'm critical of what he's saying, uh, and it's not. Our jobs are different. Uh, his job is to look at the numbers and give kind of a flag. Here's what's happening out there My job is to look at the numbers and then figure out how to win. Um, and and one of the things I always joke around uh, When I'm asked well, you know do, do, how, how much focus do you put on making sure your numbers are right? Um, I have to put hundred percent focus on the numbers being right because if they're not and our strategy isn't right, then we end up losing and I end up with no clients. Um, uh, So, I also need to update, uh, Jim, the the bio. Uh, Actually, last year was a very important year for me. Uh, Fifty years ago, last year, I walked through my first doorway of the headquarters at 12 years old. Uh, My father was in Vietnam. I was trying to understand (laughs) what was going on in politics. Ten years later, I end up working professionally, so I've actually worked not 25 years, but 40 years <laughs> um, uh, in, in, in terms of politics. Um, one of the things that is a little bit different, perhaps, on what I have to sort through, and it's, it's something that kind of... I've always seen two big disconnects coming out of Washington. One is there is this intellectual elitism in Washington. Um, that has this kind of attitude that if I give you the same information I have, if you don't come to the same conclusions I have, then you're stupid. And, and that is a disconnect with the voters. I mean, basically what I have to do in the polling is kind of get in and see what are the filters people are putting that information to to come to the conclusions they have come to. Because everyone has a different filter of their own life experiences and how they take that information and process it. And it's not that they're stupid, they're just coming at it from a different angle. The other bigger disconnect that I see with Washington, and I think I've talked to you about this before, is, is this kind of lack of understanding of problem solving. That you talk about the problem, you talk about the solutions, you implement the solutions, and that creates a new set of problems. And Washington has been through that process so many times that very often what we're viewed as, and it's probably true, is that Washington is dealing with problems created by their solutions not the root problem. And that is where a lot of the frustration that you see in the numbers come in terms of what you see uh, in terms of Washington. Um, Now, uh, the point I would make about demographics, and and one of the things I always like to talk about on demographics, is I love exit polling. Because in the month after an election, everyone is kind of looking at, okay, who were the actual voters who voted? We, We now look at that information. We know how many were Republican, how many were Democrat and we look at the exit polling, and we see that they're skewing the numbers to make the final number work out, as opposed to really looking at the demographics of what's there, and that's where you end up with information like, we won in Colorado by 15% with the independents. I mean, they had so stacked the independents in terms of that, that it was a distorted view. The bottom line is, one thing has not changed over time on the demographics, and that is approximately 70% of eligible adults registered to vote, and in a presidential year, 70% of that 70% vote, and in a non-presidential year, 50% of that 70% vote. That leaves a lot of room for us who are working in the strategy of campaigns to kind of work through, okay, how are we gonna change the math? One of the things I disagreed with, and the narrative that came out of 2012, out of the Obama campaign, was contradictory narratives. One narrative was we got it right who the electorate was. And the other narrative that they had was we beat Romney in terms of getting out (coughs) the vote. In fact, we all know that our get out the vote operation collapsed on election day, much, much less anything else. The bigger of those two things, the thing that is true is that we got beat on turnout, not that they got the electorate right. You either had the electorate right or you distorted what the electorate was going to be in terms of that election. And one of the major strategic mistakes the Romney campaign made was that they didn't do anything, anything in the non-presidential target states in terms of communicating to Republicans and turning out Republicans. And so as a result, you look at state after state after state in the non-presidential target states and Obama was running up the vote with young voters, running up the vote with African Americans, running up the vote with Hispanics, running up the vote with single women and we weren't turning out our Republicans. What I consider my home state, I was, grew up as an Army red, but what I consider my home state of Oklahoma had an eight-point drop-off of turnout from 2008. An eight-point drop-off of which half were Republicans and half were rural Democrats that were not gonna vote Democrat. And at the same time, young voters were up, Hispanics were up, African Americans were up, even with that eight-point lower. Three of the four points that Obama won the presidential election by, he won by running up his score in the non presidential race the target states, and we had no turnout. The other 1%, quite frankly, came from the rural areas in the presidential target states, because the Romney campaign thought the campaign was a battle over swing voters, specifically suburban women. And it wasn't, it was about turning out our vote. We had intensity on our side. So the first thing I always look at the data is, is, okay, where are we? Where is the intensity and where are we going? Now this election in 2016, I believe, is going to be really two things. One, it is truly going to be a battle of the middle class. And I love all these articles that came out lately saying, well, we're no longer talking about the middle class. I don't know who they're talking to, but they're not talking to at least the people that I'm working with. The middle class is our target. The middle class is, by self-definition, 70% of the electorate. When we talk about the African-American vote, we talk about the Hispanic vote. Our key to getting that vote is not approaching them as Hispanics and approaching them as African-Americans, but approaching them as middle class voters, as hard-working taxpayers, because that's what is out there this year, and that is the mood. Basically, the middle class believes that the rich get their benefits, poor get the programs, and they get the bill. And they're tired of it. They are tired of it. And quite frankly, one of the reasons why income redistribution doesn't work for the Democrats is the middle class is as pissed at the the poor, taking all these programs and then having to pay for the bills as they are at the rich for getting all the special benefits. And as long as we understand that, we won't be playing a wrong part with those voters. The other thing is going to be the future. Presidential elections are always about the future. We were at our most vulnerable time period between now and the August recess, because the focus was what was happening here on Congress. But I guarantee you, sorry to say this to you that are working on the Hill, but as of August, when that first presidential debate occurs, that is the last you're going to hear about Congress until the November election 2016. (laughs) All the focus will be on the future, all the focus will be on the presidential race, all the focus will be on what direction we're going as a country. And so, a good the, 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 <laughs> the, the best advice a good I can name. give you is just don't cause any conflicts <laughs> that the wanted, uh, as in a certain senator from Kentucky. Um, <laughs> there's no question that the voters see a myriad of of, of problems facing this country. They're concerned about the economy, they're concerned about foreign threats, Um, but they're also driven by two things that are there. I mean one of the things that's interesting analyzing the election, my view of the election, is this is almost 2008 in reverse. We have a pool of candidates running, we have a, a kind of designated nominee on the other side and I can talk a long time about why that's bad for Hillary and why that's good for us um, in terms of the multiple candidates. Right direction, wrong track. 2665, wrong track. What a lot of the public polls never look at because we spend so much of our time looking at intensity is intensity on right direction, wrong track is 11% to 54% strongly wrong track. The The President's job approval upside down by four or five points in most of the polls, but the intensity of his disapproval is 12 points net negative, negative. 12 points net negative. That gives, translates basically into we're going into this election with a nine point advantage, at least at this point, in terms of intensity. Uh, the issues are very clear. I mean, foreign affairs is always gonna be a part of this. Uh, the economy is definitely going to be a part of this. Um, One of the things I always kind of enjoy, and I'm talking about the image of the party, and I I fight constantly with insiders in in our party that are operatives, is that Republicans, and yes, it's gotten worse and better at different times, but when you ask favorable, unfavorable on the party, Democrats love the Democrats and hate the Republicans. Republicans hate the Democrats, and a lot of them don't like the National Republicans. (laughs) And so you always, it's the wrong measurement to be looking at. We right now have a five point advantage on handling the economy. We have a nine point advantage on handling foreign affairs with a middle class that goes to a 12 point advantage and an 18 point advantage. So if we campaign to that middle class, that, and particularly you're talking about white voters winning by 20 points, we ought to be winning white voters by 25, 30 points. That's when you start playing a math game that changes the equation that is out there. There are three major factors I see. Concern on the economy is the highest I've ever seen when you ask, are you concerned about an upcoming down, downturn in the economy? 72% of the American public now says that they are concerned about a downturn in the economy. On foreign affairs, um, you know, let's be honest, it's ISIS. ISIS has permeated the mindset of this country. Uh, We asked, and after 9-11, we asked a question, do you believe you or your family will ever be a target of a terrorist attack? And that's when the the kind of, in fact, Linda Lake with the Battleground came up with the term security model. Because what we found was men in the big cities said yes, but women everywhere said yes. Today only 26 percent, when you ask a very specific question, do you believe you or your family will ever be the target of a terrorist attack, only 26 percent of Americans can say no, they will not be. It has permeated the psyche of of the American Mm -hmm. public. And the last is the American dream. Um, And it's a question that we've used ever since Reagan. Do you believe the next generation will do as well financially? I remember the Reagan campaign. We changed and modified some of our messaging when for the first time it fell below 50% saying yes, the next generation will do better, today it's only 26% saying that the next generation will do do better. 79, I'm sorry, 69% say no, the next generation will not do better. So those are the factors that are going to come into play. Um, one of the most interesting things I see in the numbers for Republicans is that we've asked for, you for in presidential elections who are you going to, What do you prefer in terms of a presidential nominee? You saw the numbers in terms of more likability of Republicans. But do you want someone whose, whose views match your own, or do you want someone who is effective on getting things done? In the past, the Democrats always focused on effectiveness. Republicans always focused on someone that matches your views. Today it's 57% someone who is effective, uh, only 35%. Uh, someone that matches views of my own, and Republicans are no different than the rest of the electorate in, in in terms of that. So it's going to be very very interesting. I think the key question going into this election, when you talk about the demographics, is that this kind of uh, self-fulfilling prophecy are the demographics going to match? Um, are they going to be able to replicate? Replicate? Um, either the 2008 or more specifically in the 2012 electorate. Um, I would just point back to two races that I kind of enjoyed watching or doing in the last election from a polling standpoint. One was the Colorado Senate race and the other was the Iowa Senate race, where all the press going up into that election was uh, dead-even race, dead-even race, dead-even race, dead race. That was not what we were seeing in our polling. That was not what we were seeing in our modeling. And in fact, I loved watching the Democrats have to stick their neck out in the last two weeks. And all you heard from them is, if our vote turns out, this is a dead-even race. Not we're winning, but this is a dead-even race. And <coughs> They added to that message that both in Iowa and in Colorado, we had the mechanism of the presidential campaign from 2012 to turn out those voters. Well, we matched that. We beat that. Our polling showed in Colorado, we were going into the last weekend, we were winning by six points, we won by six points. It showed in Iowa that we were winning by eight points and gaining, we won by eight and a half points. Um, Knowing what you're dealing with, what chunk of the electorate, you don't want to predispose and take your sample down to what you think you're going to have. You need to look at the wider sample and then through other means break that down and look at where the race is. I think this is going to be a very interesting election. Um, uh, There is room for more candidates to get in, I hope, because my candidate is not in yet (laughs) Uh, and will probably be the last one in. Um, I I will say, from what I'm looking at the data, one of the reasons why you're seeing the governors do better um, is really two things. One is the effectiveness argument and the governors have proven a proven record. The problem with senators is that there's not a lot you can point to and say, I single-handedly did this. And sometimes when they do, it's things like what Rand has done, which is not something you want to be out there bragging about. Um, So I think governors have a leg up from that standpoint. Uh, I also think they have a leg up from the standpoint of at least three of the four senators are freshman senators. And one of the things that happen when people get buyer's remorse, Is they don't go and buy the same thing the next time around and I think that's going to be a very difficult uh, uh, thing for the three freshman senators to kind of push in this way. Anyway let me stop there I don't want to (laughs) thank you. We have a Q&A if uh, Carol if you and Ed would take your seats up here and uh, Peter you did such a great job introducing I will let you have either the first for the last question, um, I'll, I'll start off with a question. I, I heard a presentation by Democrats last week, and, and they were not very positive. One of the things they talked about was in Congress, there, there are about 90 purple districts, they estimated, and those districts, they said, look more like red districts than blue districts. More white, older, wealthier, more married. Does that mean that this Congress is going to be a Republican for the next decade or a generation? Or how do you read that analysis? Could you kind of repeat that? Because I think over here they had a hard time hearing this question.
0: I think, <laughs> I think the question is: that
1: Is the next Congress and in in for maybe even a decade going to be Republican? Um, uh, it depends on which side of Congress you're talking about. Um, I think in the House, as many of you know, we're at the highest number of Republican seats that we've had since 1928. Um, I think what has happened in the process is that we've been very systematic on what we did in targeting the last few elections. And so the seats we won were the seats that we could hold, um, as opposed to the kind of by chance districts that you get. Um, uh, We're also congressionally in a position of kind of all we have to do is defend what we have we have such a good margin which allows us to keep our focus there now I think there's going to be some challengers that are going to be disappointed but there's not many Democratic districts you look at now that you say we should have that district um, so it, it, it makes our job a little bit easier I think in the Senate I think it is a tougher uh, tougher vote, Uh mainly because of where so many of those Senate seat, Senate districts are um, uh, but um, My general feeling uh, is that if it's a close election, uh, we'll hold on in the Senate. Uh, If we lose it by a good margin, uh, the Senate is gone also. And if we win it by a good margin, we'll hold what we have. I have two questions, Jim. One is easy, the other
0: might not be. Pat Roberts had the biggest delta between the poll and the city was losing and then the margin by which he won. What do you think happened there?
1: Well, I, I, again, it was the public polling that didn't know quite how to do it. Um, uh, so, sorry, That's what, no, we don't do states. So. Um, yeah. <laughs> good. good. Um, uh, you know, we were we were looking at where the engagement was, um, and and quite frankly, it was a close race until the end, um, and then we were able to pop it, and we popped it based on you know our whole campaign was based on. At the end of the day, he had to become the Democrat. And when he made the comment about, here comes the clown car, um, uh, we were able to make him out to be the Democrat. Um, You know, it's interesting, there were two races we were doing. One was uh, in terms of protecting incumbents, one was Thad Cochran, and the other was Pat Roberts. Uh, The Thad Cochran race, the thing I love about that is that um, uh, people have come to say that race was the dirtiest, nastiest campaign in the history of Mississippi. And I always remind them how high that bar is. <laughs> um, that it, it, it was a rough race. But it also gave us a lot of kind of insight in terms of primaries uh, that was helpful down the road. Uh, and that is in the South, particularly. Uh, tea party, half of tea partiers are evangelical. And so rather than approach them as tea partiers, you approach them as evangelicals and you trim them off. And that's exactly what we did in that conference campaign. And the reason why he ended up winning, uh, in a way that no one expected, by his popping turnout. <coughs> from all the talk about what happened in the African American community, that was only a very small piece, uh, which is why it won by such a big margin.
0: Second demographic question that's deeper. Um, in the last few years, um, the numbers have flipped in the United States. Um, the majority of children are now born to single mothers, and that's a big demographic change in my part. On um, in my view, what do you think? is the Democratic, what's the electoral implication of
1: that? Well, I, I mean, again, um, it, I remember that when that fact first came out, Linda and I were over in England talking about uh, talking about our latest battleground. And I, at one point, had to turn to her and say, Celinda, would you stop mentioning that? It's kind of embarrassing to be uh, on uh, foreign soil to have you talking about we have reached this new dynamic. Um, <laughs> Uh, in, in this country? You know, I think it depends. I mean, the fact of the matter is, um, I have been an advocate for years that the gender gap is the wrong way to look at it. It is really much more of a married gap and a racial gap, quite frankly, than it is a married gap. We are winning married women overwhelmingly. We're winning white women by big, big margins, and we're winning white married women by huge margins, uh, 20% plus. Um, uh, what the if- impact will be there, I think we're gonna have to be ready to talk to them as moms,
0: as opposed to uh, anything else. And I think we'll, we'll adjust. But, but that, that is a growing group. I mean, that is, you know, and it's it's again, it's a, it's a long-term phenomenon. I mean, one of the things we were talking about, Ed and I were talking about, and it gets into this, it gets into what millennials are gonna do. Uh, you know, we've seen, we've seen, you know, strong vote from the under 30s for Democrats, a little, a little less strong each successive election. At, at, at this point, you know it's a little hard to say. Then we'll tell you, you know, the third, the third time's a charm. You know, third presidential election to see if they get locked in or not. We've done a lot of research over the years that you know suggests that when you came of age and the president who was who was there when you were coming of age it really matters for your long-term uh, uh, voting future some suggestion that these younger millennials are a little less democratic, uh, and that may be a reaction to bad times at the end of the Obama era, in the same way that some of the, some of the bad times at the end of the Bush era affected older millennials? R- really interesting to see, though. I think that, that gets to part of your question, is, is you know, what, how are these millennials really going to turn out? It's a real long-term. And, and,
1: and it is. I mean, on, on, on one hand, I mean, there's three pieces to it. One, uh, Carol's exactly right, our testing over the years has shown that if you vote for the same party presidentially, your first three presidential elections, that you lock in, or about 79%, I think was the figure from University of Michigan, uh, lock in for the rest of their lifetime. So this is a very important election from that standpoint. What we've been watching for from millennials is that as you get married, as you have children, as you buy a home, as you become more connected in your community, you become more conservative. The problem for millennials is that all those processes have been delayed uh, over the years. So we keep waiting for them to turn, but they won't. Um, The failure to launch isn't just a movie. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, in fact, they're referred to by their parents, quite frankly, as the boomerang generation. They keep throwing them out and they keep coming back. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, the thing that I've been watching with millennials, and, and again, part of the key is not looking at them in as millennials, but again, looking at we need to pump the white vote more on what's there. And we're winning a majority of the millennials today when you look at it, uh, white millennials. Um, is that I've watched them go through, particularly the younger half of the millennials that were in college or about ready to get into college if they were kind of caught up in the Obama part of the equation. Um, They expected there to be jobs for them immediately. There weren't jobs, so they go back to graduate school. They come out of graduate school expecting not only to have a job, but to even have a better job than what they were hoping for the last time, and they're not there. And we hit a time period about two years ago where the Millennials, the term we were getting from them on the uh, on the economy was, well, this is the new economy. They went through a, well, this is just the way it's gonna be. Um, that's not good for them. That, that goes back to that hope of the next generation doing better. Um, I think someone can tap into that. And one thing is a hope for us as Republicans is that the, 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 every new president gets a pop with young voters. And so it's not necessarily what we do with millennials in this election as much as we win this election you're going to see our support amongst millennials pop because it happens with every president. I was part of the Ronald Reagan pop uh, that occurred. You're going
0: to see it. We have to win the White House though. But the, but the one challenge there too, and Ed hasn't touched on it neither of I, is our social issues. Um, you know, we're, we have we have new data on same-sex marriage. No surprise, that Gallup found it at 60% favor. Put out a poll soon that shows approximately uh, that that kind of support, and it's so age-driven. And, and that's that's the thing. I mean, you know, this is this is seventy percent or so or more millennials uh, support same-sex marriage. These cultural issues are, are a factor now. Question is, how important are they going to be in two thousand and sixteen? We don't know, but but it's been a factor and, and will continue to be a factor. And, and from the public. Yeah. Polling
1: perspective. I mean, one of the things we always have to do is kind of sit back sometimes and say, okay, what's going to happen in the future if X, Y, and Z happens? Um, and one of the things that we've been monitoring is as these millennials are getting married, are having kids, are they going to, are they doing what their forefathers did, which is they tend to go to church more, they, they get more involved, and they do. And, and it's driven a lot by having children, quite frankly, uh, that they want to have that for their children. Um, one of the things that I think everyone's missing on the, on the gay marriage issue is that it's being portrayed as a civil right. And by my definition of what I learned the civil right was, it is not meeting a civil right uh, test. From this standpoint, is that if it truly is a civil right, then you would not exempt a class of people from having to follow that civil right. And every one of these laws, are exempting the church from having to follow that civil right. At some point, there is going to be a battle. At some point, there is going to be a contest between the perceived civil right of gay marriage and the perceived religious right of making that decision. I believe, looking at internally the data, the day that fight happens, you're going to see a 20-25 point swing in the other direction. Um, And you're going to see all of this kind of even out. It's a huge fight that's coming. I don't think you're going to see it in this election. I do think you're going to see it within the next decade. So how is the sort of these racial issues that have been going on in Baltimore, St. Louis,
0: elsewhere, how are those playing out in the polls, in the public opinion, so forth? Well, I mean, we've done a little polling on Baltimore. The the reactions to Baltimore, I think, were as you'd expect. Uh, You know, people people see, you know, some abuses by the police up there, but they're, they're more likely to blame um, any of the unrest on the people who actually committed the unrest. I mean, I don't know whether it'll be a major national issue uh, of the police, I, I, I don't know, maybe I could dip on that, but, uh, you know, I, I, I don't see that as, you know, this, is, this has been localized to an extent, and I'm not sure this is a, this is a major national issue as yet. What you are beginning to see is stories
1: seeping out. I mean, certainly the, the story that came out this week, the murder rate in Baltimore was higher than the height of, of the Iraqi war of people dying. Um, uh, you know, those kind of stories in the various cities of the police pulling back because they're afraid to get in trouble as opposed to jumping in and doing uh, what they're trained to do, whether they do it right or do it wrong, um, I think they're going to begin permeating this. What I have seen is a very strong feeling. I mean, there there never was a feeling that racial relations in this country amongst the African-American community was good. Um, It now is a feeling in the the, the white community that is much, much worse. Um, And that's not necessarily good for the process. Worse in terms of we need to do something about (coughs) it, as opposed to they're still on the let's talk about the problem stage and point fingers at who
0: caused it and I think Obama's getting some of that. He is, and, and, and one of the things we've noticed, you know, you may have noticed that this recent spurt of, uh, of violent crime in some cities, not just Baltimore. I think you're seeing it in Chicago, some other places. Crime rates have actually gone down. Violent crime rates have gone down. Crime concerns haven't gone down as much. Crime concerns are still relatively high. It'd be interesting to see now if, if crime concerns actually take a little bit higher in the wake of some of these, uh, some of these answers. Jonathan. Yes, sir, um, thank you. Uh, both of you touched on this a little bit. If you could maybe just drill down a tad more, and that is what, uh, I guess what they refer to as the blue collar traditional or blue collar conservative voter. Um, I think it was you, Carol, that kind of hinted that at the beginning, and, and I, I would agree with, I would tend to agree with that. Uh, Florida, case in point, you had over 300,000 white men aged 25 to 65 stay home. In November of 2012, and so Romney could have doubled his, you know, some of the votes and some of the other minority demographics, and he still would have lost because there just wasn't that connection with that particular part of the middle class—your blue-collar, traditional conservative/slash traditional-minded people. Could y'all talk a little bit more on how how we've kind of maybe slipped with that, and how the GOP can? Do a better job messaging to them. Well, I think I think Ed's going to be talking a lot about <laughs> in the next in the next year or so. But but I'll just say that this is a group. You know, as you know, Stan Greenberg did a lot of research back in the day with Bill Clinton on on uh, the, the white working class, Macomb, Michigan, the famous studies. Uh, you know, of, of of Clinton drawing these voters. I think a lot of people realize on the Democratic side realize that that this is a group that they've been losing, and it's a key group for them. A, a, a lot of Democratic analysts that I talk to say, say this is something that has to be reversed for the party. I suspect that a lot of these these white working class, especially men, are getting pretty locked into the Republican Party based on, based on our data. I don't know You Ed probably you know, no, have her data on this. Uh, <laughs> I, I think they are, and quite yeah.
1: frankly, I, I think uh, uh, where the failure was is exactly what you said. Um, is turning out the vote and some of that came from just focusing on the suburbs uh, as opposed to focusing on, on rural areas of the state I mean it's very interesting if you if, if, if you look at the last election we lost Iowa Ohio Virginia and Florida by 19 votes of precinct 19 votes of precinct now if we had turned out our vote and won 19 votes more precinct we still would have lost the election by over three and a half points. There would have been riots in the streets. That would have been the death of the electoral college. Um, so luckily, Romney <laughs> didn't kill that off too.
0: Thanks
1: um, <laughs> <laughs> for the small state. <laughs> Don and then uh, John over here. I think that will have to be our last question. And comes- um, the, the polls polls looking at Hillary Clinton give her. I believe she's <laughs> underwater on the trustworthiness issue. How important is that issue going to be, in your opinion, in the national election? Oh, it's huge. And, and she, she's upside down. Uh, she's upside down or favorable unfavorable also, and, and with intensity. Um, you know, people, um, my advice to the party, uh, they always take it, uh, but my advice has been, you know, we got everything we're going to get out of the email uh, situation. I mean, basically what that did is that popped her numbers about 20 points both directions, uh, both in terms of her negatives coming up and her positives coming down, and played right into the narrative of the Clintons live by a different set of rules. The damage on that has been done. We don't need to keep playing it out because then it appears to be too political. Uh, In terms of the foundation, I think we have to leave that to the news media in play. I mean, our theme right now, our theme ought to be, because it's the invisible primary that she's running right now, and Obama has cornered her pretty well on this, is, is that she is having to fight against am I running for a third term of Barack Obama? And, and she's not handling it well. Um, she's gone almost too far trying to appease some of those uh, on that side of, uh, of the aisle. Um, it's one of the things, look, the, the only advantage she has by being the kind of easy nominee at this point is that she can do long-range planning better in terms of what she needs to do for the general election. Uh, But that's going to be somewhat limited. Um, She is not a great campaigner. She is rather flat. Um, I am uh, uh, just surprised, because I've always had a great deal of respect for him, the tenure of Bill Clinton. Um, You know, I was speaking at the Southern Leadership Conference last week, and the best applause line I got Was him saying that I need to keep getting $500,000 speeches because I have bills to pay? That the middle class would like to have one of those speeches every 10 years and they can live on it? um, uh, It it, it just allows us to to, to kind of play to that. But the bigger thing is is that what will happen with having multiple candidates is at some point, one or two people are going to get lightning in the bottle and their numbers are going to skyrocket, just like Obama's did in 2008. So having a competitive race for someone to break out of the pack and all the positive that goes with that, they're gonna wake up. I mean, one of the interesting things about they keep talking about Hillary's leading and all these polls, she hasn't broken fifty percent yet in a poll. I mean, she is at her ceiling, her best numbers are gonna end up being the day before she announced. And and so all we have to do is go shooting right
0: past that, and it's gonna be, and I think she's she has a tough race on our hands. Well, with Clinton it may be a ceiling, it may also be a floor. You can never tell. I mean, that's the thing. It, it, it's, uh, My job is to make sure it's yeah, a ceiling. <laughs> no, <I> mean, yeah. <laughs> Scand- have these scandals hurt Possibly. I mean, you know, we, we looked, we really drilled down the Democrats, um, you know, and, and her, her numbers are actually among Democrats. Again, what does that mean, given her lack of competition at this point? But one of the things we did notice, and it's a little little interesting fact. Where, a lot of a lot of millennial Democrats, for whatever reason, either don't know her because <laughs> they're they're too young, or where they don't have as high opinion of her as older voters or Democrats. Very interesting. I, 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 I we couldn't quite put our finger on why that her you know obviously her favorabilities are high across the board among Democrats, but they're a little a bit lower among millennial Democrats. Something to watch uh, as as it, if if this. Democratic primary needs outcome uh, in any meaningful way. The, the, the one thing you are seeing in the data that, it,
1: again, is kind of a mirror image of what was happening in 2008, is when you look at the independents, the independents are more leaning towards the thinking of the Republicans than leaning towards the thinking of the Democrats. And, and I think that goes back to right direction, wrong track, how they feel about the incumbent president. Um, all those things are going to come into play as, as we start kind of engaging those voters in a different election. Okay. John. Um, I worry fairly or unfairly about the next generation of Republican voters, whether there will be one. Uh, you talked a little bit about millennials. There was a terrific uh, talk at the Republican retreat earlier this year by a, um, a, uh, a generationalist, I think they called him, and he talked about how, you know, the formative experiences of millennial voters and the, one of the warnings he gave the members was don't think that, uh, you know, don't fall prey to the, to the notion that as they get older, they're going to become more like you. Every generation thinks that young people will, <coughs> they won't. You need to adapt to them. What advice would, you know, what, what advice would you give to the party on how to broaden its appeal to make itself more relevant and interesting? Because they <coughs> may agree with us on all sorts of things, but if they... If you issues where we are so out of sync with them, those could be the disqualifiers. My first advice would be don't listen to the guy that said it. They don't get up like their parents um, uh, uh, It is finding those things. I mean, it's, it's we, we keep getting into these babbles of swing voters. You know, again, um, voters are not saying that they want someone that matches their views. They're saying, I want someone who is effective. And the message to the young generation is don't accept that this is the new norm on the the economy. Don't accept that this is, we have to live in constant fear in terms of terrorism in this country. We will do this. And one of the things Romney missed a huge opportunity because he was so intent on talking down the economy in 2012, In, in January of 2012, a report came out that in seven of the ten most improved economic states, it was Republican governors who had replaced Democratic governors. Um, We were showing in state after state after state that getting in and changing the direction of the economy, changing the way things were being done, standing by our principles of what we think is the right thing to do. And let let me tell you, they can disagree with us on gay marriage, they can disagree with us on abortion, which I question whether they really do, um, but but if you bring it down to what really matters to them, which is their future, the economy, their ability to work hard, play by the
0: rules, and get ahead, we can appeal to them. I, I would I would just say since I've talked about cultural and social issues, one of the one of the things that people don't understand, millennials are very liberal on same-sex marriage, very liberal on marijuana legalization. Very liberal on immigration. No different on gun control. Very little different on abortion. There's not there's not there's a surprising little little age gap on abortion. So so it depends on it's very issue dependent. It, it, it is very issue dependent on those things. And, and my whole
1: point yeah. being don't get bogged yeah. down yeah. talking about yeah. the social issues, you know. Yeah. It's not that we need to change on those issues. What we need to do is campaign to those things that are important to them that we do match on. And in all the years I've been polling, I've never told a candidate to change his position <clears throat> based on the polling. I have said talk about these issues that voters are interested in and don't
0: talk about these issues that only you are interested in. <laughs> well, the millennials
1: is getting out the vote, isn't it?
0: Well, well. well. First off, it's it's not just millennial young people. Yeah. It's yeah. not the 1970s that yeah. voted at much lower rates, and, and so. <laughs> but Obama had success yeah. in, in in raising that turnout. Big question about whether that happens again.